Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. We want you to know that during COVID, we're holding one big service outdoors and we'd love for you to join us whenever you can. And now, here's our teaching for this week. We hope it leads you to encounter the way of Jesus more fully. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. If you're a guest with us today, welcome to Sunridge. We want to send our warmest welcome to you. And if you're not aware of the fact that we meet on Sunday mornings outdoors at 1030 in our courtyard, well, we would love to see you and meet you there. And to the rest of you regular attenders who we have not gotten to see in person or it's been a while, we miss you and we're so glad that you're joining us today. My name is Jed and it's an absolute privilege to get to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And this morning we are continuing in our series entitled The Sermon on the Mount. We're studying through Matthew chapter 5 through 7, which as we've said before, constitutes some of the most important words of Jesus. And we find them throughout the rest of the New Testament, inspiring the other works. We see them playing out for the early church. And in the centuries thereafter, we have continued as Christ followers to reflect on this critical part of Jesus's ministry and his message. And so today I have the opportunity of continuing in chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. And I will read that to you now. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear. For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. If you joined us last week, we had the opportunity to hear from one of our church family members, David Williams, and he did an incredible job. And David was talking about the passage right before this and the orientation of our hearts and how we could not ultimately serve both God and money or stuff. And again, it wasn't just about thinking that money in itself is evil, but the love of that and how we can get corrupted in thinking that in striving for just attaining those things, it would not interfere 
with our heart's orientation toward God. And I encourage you, go back and listen to that message if you have not. But one of the things that David said at the very end, I pulled out of his message because it really was such a perfect transition to today. And David said these words, we need to faithfully trust God for his provision. And if we live in fear that our needs won't be provided, then it's going to be really difficult to have a generous heart. David, thank you so much for reminding us of that. And if there were a simple takeaway, a hope for this message, that would be one of them, that we would trust God and not fear that he is going to provide for us. But let's go back to the text and those very early words of Jesus in this section where he says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. See, when we hear those words of Jesus, perhaps we find it to be insensitive, perhaps. Maybe we hear it come off like this. Just stop worrying or just don't do that anymore. Is that really what Jesus is going after? It's clear, it is clear that this is indeed a command. It's a directive. It's an invitation. And that last word that I used, an invitation, is close to the heart of what commandments are biblically anyways. They're not these things of just do this or else, but this is the way that I've created and designed you to walk and to live and to be full and to experience. And so, of course, to not worry incessantly would be for our good. But we can hear that and still feel like, okay, so what do I do? What do I do with that? How do I stop worrying? How do I just get better? Is that what Jesus is after? And I, I don't think so. My sophomore year, of college, I had a professor named Dr. Matz, and he was the head of the Bible department. And there was a chapel where he was giving this award. It was the Biblical Exegesis Award, the Tools Award. And it was awarded to the student that he believed had done the best job exegeting a passage of scripture and writing about it. And unbeknownst to me, uh, I was getting that award that day, but ironically, I was pulling an all-nighter for another Dr. Madsen class that I was in, writing an exegetical paper. And so Mallory actually called me that morning and was like, where are you? You're getting the tools award. And I thought, what in the world? And so I hopped on my longboard and skated to the chapel, but I didn't make it in time. I didn't get to stand on that stage with him. And anyways, a few weeks later, Dr. Madsen actually called me into his office, not to talk about the award that he didn't get to give me, but to talk about the paper that I was writing that night, that all-nighter that I'd submitted. And the first thing that Dr. Madsen asked me when I got into his office was, hey, Jed, are, are you okay? And I thought, I, I, I think I am. Why are you asking Dr. Madsen, he proceeds to tell me that he knew that I was capable of so much more. And when he read that paper, he thought something might be off with Jed. And so I might just check and ask, how are you? It was the, the one and only B that I ever got on a paper in college. And I can feel myself 
recognizing that Dr. Matson was on to something, and I ended up weeping in his office. I ended up explaining that I was really, really stressed out and just tired and feeling the weight and the burden of being an RA and all these other responsibilities and my other jobs, tutoring for the English department, all of those things. And what Dr. Madsen did for me in that moment is he didn't have answers or solutions or how I should fix it. He didn't tell me that he was disappointed because I didn't do a good job of my paper and that's not what he expected. He brought me in to ask if I was okay, which let me share that I wasn't. You see, when we get to this passage of scripture, what we have here isn't just an invitation to a fuller way of life. What we see Jesus doing is that he's acknowledging. He's acknowledging that stress, worry, and anxiety are a part of our human condition. When I say human condition, not the way that God designed us to be, but because of our fallenness and our sin that has become a part of our condition, the stress and the worry and to fret, and to be anxious. One of the things that we've tried to say over and over when looking at the biblical text, we do this for the high school students, we do this from the stage now, is when we see something stated explicitly, directed, commanded, invited in Scripture, is to assume that the opposite is at hand. And so when Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not worry, we don't need to be quick to say, like, well, just stop worrying. No, no, no. It's an invitation to recognize that, oh yeah, I am worrying about a lot. I am experiencing stress right now. Perhaps fear, anxiety. Think about stress and say that word. What does it make you feel right now? We know that stress or any force that is psychological or physical that causes a function to be moved outside of balance. You can think about that with our bodies. And when something's moved outside of balance, that stressor produces strain. We think about strains in the workplace, job-related strains. So the stresses of your job might make it so that you're experiencing low job satisfaction or feelings of withdrawal and not wanting to show up to the office anymore, counterproductive work behavior. We think about strains in our home or with our relationships where we're more irritable or we have a lack of patience. Emotionally, there are extreme things. Burnout, which many of us know what that's like or to teeter on that edge. And we see the word worry. We can understand that we have this propensity as human beings to ruminate on things and for our minds to get stuck and play out all these scenarios in the future. We anticipate something happening that we want to happen this way, but we fear is going to happen that way. I know what that's like too. And and then anxiety. The statistics say that in America alone, over 40 million people struggle with this. 18% of the population And yet in recent self-analysis surveys from different organizations over the last year in this pandemic, that number has risen to upwards of 40%. I see all three of those words, stress, worry, and anxiety. And I know that it's not in my inclination to want to acknowledge that that's there. But how can I not see these words of Jesus and confess that is what's here? A lot of the time. And so I don't think 
that Jesus' heart is for you and I to feel more guilt or shame or condemnation. I don't think the Christian way that Jesus would propose is that we say the only weak people experience that, or here's the way that you can just do that better, or here's how you need to stop doing that so that I don't think that's what it is. It's really quickly. Would you acknowledge some of those things? What keeps you up at night? What's the stuff right now that is making your head or your heart hurt? The stuff that you're waking up already feeling pressing in on you after you finally get to bed and the next morning arrives too quickly. Something at work, an upcoming test, a strained relationship, the prospect of of something that maybe you don't even want to talk about here. I don't know what that is, but but it's there, yes? And if not now, at some point in the past. So what does Jesus really want to do? Well, the first thing that Jesus is saying to us is that this is a soul issue. It's a soul issue. Now, we can't see this immediately in the English, but I want to to show you that there's a very particular way that Jesus viewed and understood the soul. We see again, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. And that's a really great way for biblical scholars and translators to put this word. Do not worry about your life. Now, let me pause really quickly and say that for most of us, when we hear the word soul, we think about the way that it was described to us growing up, that that popular view that it's this thing, this immaterial thing inside of us. Maybe it's the essence of who we are, the core of who we are. And what's interesting, actually, if you ask the average person, what is the soul? Most of us, I don't know. It's kind of like this, yeah, it's this thing. It's it's inside of me. It's it's who I'm supposed to be. It's, it's the real me, however we would want to term that. And the reason why that is such a common way of thinking is because when Greek philosophy became the predominant way that the world viewed things, they'd adopted Plato's view of the soul. We could term that Platonic dualism. And in Platonic dualism or dualistic thought, the idea is that the physical was bad. And so trapped within the physical body was this immaterial spirit, this this soul that upon death would be freed out into the cosmos. And the early Gnostics took Plato's idea of the soul and, and they developed that further to have this theology that the soul would escape into the cosmos and be freed into the kingdom of the light. And so early Christians, when they're battling Gnostic thought, even some of the language was so, so similar. And so today we're still impacted by this idea that it's this immaterial thing. But when we say, therefore, I tell you, when Jesus says, do not worry about your life, in the Greek, what we see is, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your suke. And suke is the Greek word that we also get the English word psyche from. It's the root for psychology. You know what that is. But suke can also be properly and accurately translated as soul. In other words, 
for doing the English Greek reading of this, we could say, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your suke. Do not worry about your soul, what you'll eat or drink about your body, what you'll wear. It's really funny. I told that story about Dr. Madsen, and it's reminding me that he was the one that first exegeted this for me and our entire class. The first time I was exposed to this idea that the soul wasn't just this immaterial thing inside of me. It was mind-blowing. One of the things that Dr. Madsen talked about was how if the soul were this immaterial thing inside of us, would it have any need to eat or to drink? You go, okay, well, I still see some disconnect there. I see, do not worry about your soul, but then body, aren't those two things separate? Let's show you how those things are more connected than we might think. In Genesis chapter two, when God is creating, it says, then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now, if we're doing the English Hebrew thing, we would say, and the man became a nephesh. Now, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, we have the word suke. In other words, nephesh and suke, Hebrew, Greek, same word, in English, a soul. So we can say, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a soul. You see, the reason why English translators have to put life and living being there isn't because those things aren't true. It's because when we hear life and when we hear soul, when we hear living being, when we hear soul, we feel like they're separate or this is a component of it when in fact for Jesus... And for the Jewish way of looking at their scripture, the soul wasn't this thing. It was all of you. We could say this more fully. God is the good and soul source of the entirety of our existence and being. And you say that we don't have a soul, but we are souls. We are made alive and we have life because God breathed and God animated and God spoke, God decided, God created, God sustained, God made us and all of this possible and real. The emphasis of being a soul is not that we would spend just this time wondering about the essence of us. No, no, no. The emphasis of being a soul is that it is about God, the one who gives life makes life. I think why it's so critical to experience the nuance of that is because when we hear that it's all of us, it's everything, then suddenly things that feel separate. So if we could say that's physical or that's spiritual or that's emotional or that's relational or that's my professional life or that's my personal life or whatever it is that we want to categorize or separate, if it's everything, then it makes perfect sense that when we feel impact or stress or worry and hardship in one component of our soul, of our life, the other things would experience being off balance and hardship as well. You see, if I weren't a soul, when I'm struggling at home, 
it would have no impact on my struggle at work and vice versa. See, if I weren't a soul, then my old spinal injury and the chronic stress that I have, if that were just physical, then that would not impact me the way that it does that feels so spiritual when I feel disconnected with God after my disc slips. Again, it's not coincidental. It's not coincidental that my sense of being is misplaced because discs in my back are dislodged. I was created and you and I were created as whole beings. And that matters because it's less about me and more about God. But what's fascinating, of course, is that the way Jesus speaks these things is with so much care about his listeners and and then to us too. And he does this by using rhetorical questions. So here's our progression. He continues by saying, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So two rhetorical rhetorical questions. We look at the first one. Here's the second one. And just to remind us, a rhetorical question is a means to have a stated assumption without having it responded. So I didn't say that very clearly. A rhetorical question is if I ask you something, I'm not expecting you to respond because the way that I ask the question and pose it gives you the answer. So when Jesus says, are you not of more value than the birds? We can't expect the disciples who are listening to him go, yeah, oh man, I'm not sure if I'm more valuable than that bird. No, that's, that's not what's here. The disciples who are sitting with Jesus, more than likely these, these teenagers, these adolescents who he's called to himself, when they're looking out and Jesus is pointing out these birds in nature, he's asking about food and clothing. They're having to really, really wonder, do I believe that my heavenly father will take care of me? The question of value. Uh, my middle child, Titus, really started liking Pokemon two weeks before Christmas. And so two days before Christmas, Mallory and I went on a scramble to get him Pokemon stuff because that's what he was suddenly into. And Pokemon are these little animal characters and they come from a a TV show. And I liked Pokemon when I was a kid too. And Tyus is really funny. He loves them so much that he says he wants to be a scientist so that he can create Pokemon uh, to be real and he can play with them. That was actually a thought that I had when I was a kid too, which is really, really weird. But anyways, these Pokemon cards, they have these symbols at the bottom that indicate the rarity of the card, how valuable they are. And it's fun to look at these cards when Titus finds one. It's like, Dad, that's super rare. Or Thaddeus has another one. It's like, Dad, that's super rare. You know, when Thaddeus pulled a Tapu Koko, I had no idea what Tapu Koko was. And the boys flipped out. They're like, Tapu Koko. And Mal and I are like, yeah, Tapu Koko, super, super rare. What's funny about you and I is that when we think about our value, I know we're not cards and we're not inanimate objects, but there really isn't anyone more rare than you. So you can feel common in that, but there's no one with your fingerprint. There's no one who is exactly you. And so, of course, you and I are incredibly valuable. And so you're maybe saying like, whoa, pause, pause, pause. I thought, I thought we're not making the soul about 
us. And here's where we turn that again to recognize that when we consider that God views us so valuable, each and every single one of us, it's not an opportunity to say, well, like, yeah, I'm the most special thing in the wide world. There's no one like me. No, 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 no. It's to emphasize his creative goodness that, again, he is the sole source of everything. He alone is it. It's, it's him. It's him. And he's a heavenly father that we have to question and ask ourselves if we believe that he's going to provide. Will he take care of us? Jesus continues with the next rhetorical question. He says, and can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? And the typical English translation for this seems really straightforward. It's like, yeah, you know what? I'm pretty sure if, if I worry more, it's not going to help me at all. If anything, it'll make me more stressed out. But one of the things that I love is some translations have attempted to keep what's closer to the original language, which is this really odd imagery of adding one cubit to your height. So Jesus, if we were doing the Greek English thing again, could say, can any of you by worrying add one cubit to your height? A cubit is 18 inches long. And remember, when we're thinking about the original audience here, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, most of them who are teenagers, who aren't fully into maturity. And when we're kids, we all remember what it's like to want to get taller, to want to grow up, because there's something about getting taller that we look at as a parallel, understandably so, to becoming an adult and we don't grow forever, but isn't there this striving to grow and to gain the inches? Do you remember standing up against the wall and trying to stick your chest higher so that they can nick that mark over your head higher than it was or wearing a different pair of shoes or to this day still fudging about your height by like an inch or two, which people will notice because there's something about feeling like we've statured up that way. Well, Jesus is saying with that imagery, that by worrying, it's not like you're going to be able to increase in stature. The assumption there is kids, when we get taller, we have access to this grown-up world. And so we use these ideas before that our worrying about the future is typically about that thing that we expect is going to make us feel more fulfilled, more able, more as adults. So when you're in high school, you think, well, once I graduate, and then when I get to college, and then when I get a job or a career, when I get married or when I buy a house or when I have kids or when, and over and over and over again, how many things do we look at in the future believing that when we get them or when we've accomplished that, that suddenly our soul, our life, our being will experience wholeness or fulfillment. And we know it doesn't work like that. But what it does expose is a question that reverberates in the core of all of us, and we could summarize that as this. Do I matter? Does life matter? Our worry about getting things and advancing exposes the fact that we become more and more aware as we age that this ends, this version of it ends at some point. And there's this grasping within it to feel as though we have got a handle on it. Let's keep going with these questions. Jesus goes back to nature and he seems to do something that's really basic. 
Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. It's important that Jesus is referencing a king, by the way, and nonetheless King Solomon, one of their most famous kings. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. When you look at the things that these disciples were worrying about, food and clothing, drink, you might think, well, I'm not worried about that. About that. I've got bigger things to worry about. And some people might say, well, this is a great picture of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. See, we've got to take care of that basic stuff before we can move on to belonging and love and ultimately self-actualization. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that theory of motivation, isn't well attested to scientifically anyways. But we get that it feels like, for the most part, the basic things are taken care of. Then we want other things to be taken care of. But let's refresh here. The question we asked earlier is, do I believe that my Heavenly Father will take care of me? It's foundational to Jesus' belief that the Heavenly Father will provide and take care. He asked those rhetorical questions to, to show your Heavenly Father will take care of you. But here's the important progression that we see Jesus pulling out. It's more about, do I believe that my heavenly father wants to take care of me. Do you hear and see the difference there? There's a difference between a heavenly father who will take care of you and the heavenly father who wants to take care of you. A couple weeks ago, I was leaving Nate and Heather Fretz's house. And I've talked before, Heather's like a big sister to me and Nate's become like a big brother too. And I was leaving and, and stopped by their new kitchen. Super fun just to see how awesome it looked. And as Nate and I were chatting there, I, I said, hey, Nate Dog, that's that's my nickname for Nate Dog. What do you think about worry and stress and anxiety? Nate's like, bro, that's... That's a big topic. And Nate and I have talked about this stuff before because of our own struggles with anxiety and, and worry. And he's like, well, why are you asking? And I told him, well, I'm going to be giving a message in a couple weeks. And I'm trying to just hear about what people are thinking. He said, yeah, well, he started talking about that lack of control, right? And we worry and we fret and wanting to grasp for things to get a semblance of control. And then he stopped and said, you know, like, you know, what I've really wor- wondered about is whether or not worry and anxiety are more of like a first world problem. Like if it's something that we only experience because we have all of those basic things met, but then we just want more stuff. And he continued by telling a story of Liv, their daughter. I've started calling her Roro. Rocky Roro. And several years ago, Liv went to Romania 
And she came back with these stories for her parents where she said that the kids there were just filled with so much joy. Like they, they were filled with this happiness that she had never seen before. And so Nate's describing this and he said, it doesn't seem like they have worry or anxiety. They're so happy there. And the reason why I tell that story is because what it actually pulls out is that we think that worry and anxiety aren't there when really they are. And the only reason why they temporarily subside is because a teenager and a group of teenagers would travel halfway around the world and their presence would be felt there. I was able to tell Nate that I'm pretty sure that worry and anxiety are not just first world problems because again, when Jesus is speaking these words, the original audience, he's speaking to people who are poor. The disciples didn't have much. These original hearers had good reason to be concerned about what they were going to eat next, perhaps. And so it's not about whether or not us being materially poor prevents us from feeling worry. But that when Liv and those teenagers went across the world, it was their presence there that changed everything. See, when it comes to worry, what I'm convinced the biggest risk to my soul and to your soul and to our souls, the biggest risk and threat to us is thinking that there's a greater gift to us than God himself. That God would have anything more for us than his presence. That's a really difficult thing to grapple with because so much of my life, when I think about God's presence, I think about the lack of his presence. I don't feel him. It's hard for me. But may I show you with the text why this is so much about the disciples believing that they have a heavenly father who wants to take care of them, whose presence would indicate that. You see the very next verse is one of the most famous verses in your whole Bible. Matthew 6, 33 says, but strive first for the kingdom. And I stopped there because even though some of our translations say for the kingdom of God and it or his righteousness, earlier manuscripts and texts just include the kingdom. And and I, I appreciate there being something more cryptic about this because I think that that may have been really intentional. Strive first for the kingdom. You know, in thinking about why the Heavenly Father would switch to this idea of a kingdom, I remember being a child. And my favorite thing about my dad was when we would go on these long trips, we'd be coming, on, coming home from these long trips. And at the end of it, when we, we pulled up to the driveway to wherever we were, either coming home or ending up in Bakersfield, which is where my cousins lived. And, oh my gosh, let's not tell stories about Bakersfield and the heat in the summer, but that's beside the point. When we would get to these places, my dad would pull me out of my booster seat. And even though I was awake, I always pretended to be asleep. Always. Every single time. 
And I can still feel my dad lifting me up out of the booster and, and saying, my full name is actually Jedley. I don't hear that very often, but he would say, Jedley, Jedley, we're home, we're home. And I would pretend to be fast asleep. And I did that because I you know, didn't hug my dad much. That wasn't really that thing. But that's when I really felt my father. I could feel him holding me. And, and when he had walked me into the room wherever we were and he put me down on the bed, I can always remember thinking, I really like how my dad carries me. That was impactful for me. And the last time my dad did that, I think I was 14. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's a terrible joke. No, my dad did not like drag me. I think he's, anyways, what a, what a funny thing. That's not that funny. I'll stop here. I, I tell you that story because the most helpful thing for my father to do ultimately was not to just carry me for the rest of his life to prove that his presence was with me or that he wanted to take care of me. One of the most helpful things my father, my earthly father, my dad would do for me is that he would be with me as I grew up to be able to do those things that God, my heavenly father, had designed for me to be able to do walk out of that car, at least for that time being. You see, when Jesus concludes this section with, but strive first for the kingdom, the reason why I can promise you that this is about us needing to believe that our Heavenly Father not just will take care of us, but our Heavenly Father wants to take care of us is because if it were anything differently, Jesus would have said these words. He would have said after all the conclusion, right? For the Gentiles, you strive after all these things. Indeed, your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. He would have said, so strive first for your heavenly father. That's what he would have said. And the reason why our hearts attune that message is because there's something about us that actually still believes that lie that it's up to us to generate a response from the heavenly father to not just take care of us, but to certainly want to take care of us. I know that that's, that's a struggle for me. It is so hard for me to conceive of a life where I am not ultimately responsible. Because stewardship is so key. And I know that I could decide that I'm going to lay down in bed for the rest of my life. And I could, and I could wonder, when's God going to do anything for me? But that is the most extreme version. And that's not what we're getting to here. When we talk about our heart and the orientation of our heart and what we believe in the depths of our being, I have to question whether or not I still have this fractured view of God that says, if I don't strive for you, Heavenly Father, if I don't perform for you, if I don't war to make all those things possible, if I don't show you that I can do it, if I don't show you that I'm good enough or able or capable, then I'm not sure that you're going to do what I want you to do for me. So this invitation to strive for the kingdom is powerful because when we think about kingdoms, they require a few things. Kingdoms require king, people, and land. Like if I showed you a castle and said it's the kingdom, 
he could say, no, that's, that's not a kingdom. And we'd say, why? Well, because if it's just a castle and there isn't a king there and there aren't people and there's not land, it's just a castle. So when we think, strive first for the kingdom, and Jesus is saying these words to these disciples, if he's been talking about worry, the invitation there is to consider, well, what makes it a kingdom? And if it is, who is this king? And what kind of king is he? So here's the question that we ask ourselves thereafter. Do I believe in this king? who came to seek and save my soul. When the disciples spent time with Jesus, when he burst on the scene and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, the perfect example of an invitation, not condemnation. Have your mind changed because of your experience of being with me. That is what Jesus is issuing there. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All of the wondering about what that means questioned whether or not there was going to be this physical kingdom that overthrew and whether or not they would actually, this physical kingdom, this place where all their needs would get taken care of. But as they spend time with Jesus, what becomes more and more clear but doesn't make sense to them is he is not like any other king. And so for Jesus to, to say, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as ransom. Or I came to seek and save the lost. Or I came not for the healthy and the righteous, but for the sick. When Jesus expresses himself this way, what we find again is that he is unlike anything or any. One, And so when it comes to the worry in my life, when I think about my soul, part of the hard work is pausing to remember, I once wasn't here, but I'm here right now. And I'm not sure what it looks like in the future. And I have a hope for something thereafter, but in this moment, if I'm aware that I didn't create this, I'm certainly not going to be able to stop it from decaying. I'm not going to be able to save this. If I come to that place of complete recognition that my soul, my life, my being, it's not of me. I have something to steward, but it's, it's not of me. And, and I come to this place where the Holy Spirit produces faith in Christ Jesus, that it's him, that he's this king, then over and over, my worry, my fear, my anxiety, it is calling me to recognize again and again and again that even though I don't feel his presence with me all the time, I get to ask myself, myself, those rhetorical questions. And I get to look around. And I get to see other people who are perhaps asking those questions too. So I look at how Jesus ends. He wraps it all up and says, So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Can I just point out what's so funny, what seems like a riddle about all this, but it's not a riddle, it's just real. If, if at the beginning, 
the idea were just stop worrying and don't do that because that's just not, just stop, stop, stop. Why would Jesus at the very conclusion say, don't worry about tomorrow? Why would he say that assuming that we're going to worry about the future and tomorrow? Why would he be so straightforward to say tomorrow will bring worries of its own? Why would he be so honest to say that today's trouble is enough for today? That is so powerful to me. I'm so, so thankful that the model of the king who I have can say there is trouble in this day. There's hardship. And even when we see Jesus approaching Jerusalem, approaching the cross, when we see him in the garden, even though his full intent, and he knew that he was to complete the mission, that he came to seek and save the lost, that he came so that he would empty himself, so that he would sacrifice himself on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, so that we would have the opportunity to experience life and abundant life, not just someday in the future, but here and now, so that we would hear his words and understand that we could pass from death to life here and now today, even though he knew all those things and modeled that, he still could say today's trouble is enough for today. So you're maybe wondering like, what do we, what do, we do then? Do we just admit that there's just this trouble? How do we fix this? How do we fix this? I think we hear Jesus' words. Today's trouble is enough for today. And part of the trouble that I can sit in is that I need to keep working on remembering who my soul, who my life belongs to. Here's the last thing. As a faith community, I believe, we level with our doubts communally to make room for Christ. You're saying, well, what are you talking about, Jed? When you say that we're being level with someone, you're saying we're being honest. I like the idea of being level because when I, I think about a flat surface, I think... This is, this is us on the same playing field, on the same ground. And in a faith community where the temptation is to hear passages of scripture like this and think that something is wrong because you worry or that the self-help thing to do is to just figure out how to stop worrying, even though for our goodness, God doesn't want us to worry. I'm still convinced that what we are truly confronted with is wrestling as a faith community with our doubts about who our heavenly father is. If we believe he's going to take care of us. And if we believe he wants to take care of us. And if we as a faith community could actually express that based off of the diagnosis that we got from the doctor. Or the relationship that just ended. Or the college that we didn't get into. Or the job promotion that we didn't get or the marital strife at home, or the wayward child that we have spent all this time loving on and we're wondering whether or not they're going to come back, or the loved one who we lost, or any host of things that is bringing us worry or pain. If instead we could say that together, then perhaps rather than fixing it for each other, we could practice 
remembering his presence is with us when we gather. That's his promise. And when the disciples ask Jesus, when Philip asks him, Jesus, show us the way to the Father. He's saying, we want to see this heavenly Father you've talked about for all this time. Show us him, show us him. You're, you're, you're talking about him more. What does Jesus say to him? Have you not all this time been with me? Have you not seen me? Jesus says, if you've seen me, how can you ask, show me the Father? I and the Father are one. And the most honest thing I can tell you is I really still struggle to believe that. I still struggle to believe that because it doesn't solve all the things that I'm worried about and I'm concerned about. But I'm so grateful that I get to be a part of a faith community where I can express those things to you across this camera and the people who I love behind the scenes. And rather than feeling judged or condemned for that, when people sit with me in that difficult doubt, faith is provoked because I'm reminded he is with us. He does care for me. He does want to take care of me. And I'm so grateful that I get to be a part of a kingdom where I'm not responsible for saving my soul. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for all that you've done for us. And through your spirit, as you have us look to your son. And God, when I'm reflecting on all that's even led up to today and the panic of last night, my heart palpitating then and not wanting to show up today, not even wanting to do this. God, I'm grateful for all those who sat with me behind the scenes to encourage and in doing so, remind me that your presence is with us, that you want to take care, not just other people, but you want to take care of me. And so God, for all those who are listening today, would your spirit awaken in them what they could not on their own because it is foolishness to think, and yet it is truth, that you would absolutely love us enough to empty yourself, to give us your son and to redeem us here and now and forevermore. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need help with something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. Or if you'd like to know more about us, just go to our website, sunridgechurch.org, and you'll know what to do from there. We hope you'll listen in again next week. But in the meantime, wherever you go, deepen faith, bring hope, and live love.